Good afternoon. Thanks for jumping aboard on this beautiful August day. Today we're going to be talking about uh, New York workers' compensation. And the topic for today is medical treatment. And we've got a lot of stuff that's changing and uh, new and coming out soon. So today is really going to be kind of more of a preview than it's going to be a, a greatest hits because there's so much stuff changing right now with New York medical treatment, particularly the guidelines and the new computer system that the board is utilizing now uh, to deal with a lot of the uh, variance requests or PAR requests that are coming in. So I got a lot of topics to touch on today, and then I'm going to answer as many questions as I can. So let's just briefly touch on what we're going to talk about today. I am going to talk about the new coming soon medical treatment guidelines. And by the way, I've been saying coming soon for about a year now because they keep pushing back uh, the date that these uh, guidelines are going to come into play. I'm going to talk about onboard limited release, which is an awkward, strange name uh, for the computer system that the uh, board has rolled out uh, that's going to allow our adjusters and risk professionals uh, to approve um, medication and authorization requests. I'm going to talk about out-of-state care, and this is really what I'm going to focus on today, uh, sort of the, the tips and tricks on how to make sure you're controlling medical costs the best way possible. I have to touch briefly on medicinal marijuana because I do get questions on it from time to time. Uh, and I'm going to talk about telemedicine essentially becoming uh, almost permanent. I mean, there's now uh, a regulation which, if it is undisturbed, will make telemedicine permanent. I'm going to talk very briefly about the drug formulary and the very few changes that you need to know about. And then I'm going to try to answer as many questions as you present to me today. Now, everything I'm going to talk about today is in the context of approaching medical treatment in New York uh, from a cost control and employer perspective. Uh, I used to, when I would talk about medical treatment, I would talk all about the guidelines and how they apply, but really that's gotten better and better and easier and easier, particularly with this new limited onboard release program that the board has uh, implemented. So I'm really going to try to talk to you today about ways in which we can control or adjust or sort of respond to spiraling medical costs and really how we're going to utilize these rules to your best advantage. And that's really why I want to talk about out-of-state care and focus on some of the things that we can do that are in the guidelines currently. So currently, there are current medical treatment guidelines that have been in effect now for eight, nine years. Uh, we are guidelines affecting the mid and low back, neck, knee, and shoulders. Now, these guidelines were joined by carpal tunnel guidelines as well, uh, and a non-acute pain guideline a few years ago, which was really good for us. The medical treatment guidelines are really the pathway uh, that these body parts or these uh, symptoms or conditions are meant to follow. And so these are considered best practices for the medical professionals. And if the medical professional wants to depart from the medical pathway that's set forth in the medical treatment guideline, they have to request your permission as the payer. And they need to request permission anytime they want to depart from one of these medical treatment guideline pathways, or they're seeking any treatment that's not covered by a guideline and costs more than $1,000. Now, back in the bad old days, there were no medical treatment guidelines, and every single uh, time that the uh, physician wanted to do treatment that cost more than $1,000, uh, they would submit a request, an authorization request, and the risk professional would have to react to that. The guidelines were really a good thing for employers because it really um, limited down the amount of nonsense medical care uh, and also uh, useless medical care. And it also, the medical treatment guidelines um, also contain strict limits 
as to the amount of some types of modalities of care that can be provided. So for example, there are limits on how much physical therapy that a claimant will be provided after a routine surgery. And we've all uh, defended cases or handled cases where someone got a very routine, like perhaps a uh, meniscal repair of the knee arthroscopically performed, and then was in physical therapy for four or five years afterwards, uh, constantly going to physical therapy and running up huge bills. And we know that after three or four months of physical therapy, uh, really it's not really going to restore any function or improve the person's pain scores. And that was really out of control. So the medical treatment guidelines put some strict limitations in there and some thresholds. And that was really, really good for employers. Now, over the last two years, the board has been teasing us with new medical treatment guidelines. And so when these guidelines came out, we knew the first four guidelines came out, we knew they were going to add more guidelines as the years went on. In fact, they said, uh, as we're going to tackle the treatments or the body parts that have the most injuries and we see the most cost, and then we're going to move through the list and, and add more and more guidelines for more and more body parts. So really, I saw in our practice this big improvement when the board released the non-acute pain guidelines. Uh, and those really limited the amount of opiate people can be put on, and, and really the pain management uh, became a little bit more under control when that happened. So now the board's been teasing us with new medical treatment guidelines. These were announced back in 2020 early, and they were supposed to all be implemented on January 1, 2021. Well, that didn't happen. They've been delayed. So there are now new proposed guidelines for elbow injuries, ankle and foot injuries, hip and groin injuries, interstitial lung disease, which is separate from occupational asthma, uh, hand risk and carpal tunnel syndrome guidelines. Uh, and now, just very recently in May, uh, the board has now proposed a stress disorder guideline, which would include post-traumatic stress disorder, as well as depressive disorder guidelines. So these are really useful for us. You know, I look at PTSD or depression as one of those uh, injuries that is typically thrown into a case at some point. You know, the claimant has been under uh, medical care and at some point six to eight months in there uh, they go to a psychiatrist and get a diagnosis of either PTSD because they're fearful about getting hurt again or they have some sort of generalized depression oftentimes it's not even a psychiatrist who's giving them it's just some uh, you know healthcare provider and that gets into their claim and guess what that's going to drive up the value of settlement or resolving that claim because they'll have this sort of throw-in case so I'm really happy to see that the board is implementing stress disorders and depression disorders as a guideline body part. Uh, in addition, guidelines for the elbows and ankles and foot and hips and groins, you know, those are less common injury types, but they are pretty common. And we should see some benefit to employers when these guidelines are eventually implemented. Now, uh, all of the guidelines, with the exception of stress disorders and depression disorders, they were released last year. Uh, last summer, uh, they came out with these, and they were supposed to be implemented January 1, 2021. Well, uh, with coronavirus, uh, the board has decided to delay the implementation of these guidelines, and it's unfortunate. I don't really understand what about coronavirus would keep us from implementing, for example, a hip and groin guideline. I'll see why they couldn't do it now, but they've been delaying implementing this. Um, and so at this current time, while we're having this webinar on August 16, 2021, I can't tell you exactly when these guidelines are going to come into play, but I'm hoping it's shortly. Uh, the uh, executive order uh, has been ended since June, June 7th, I believe, in New York was the day. The executive order was rescinded, saying that we're no longer in a coronavirus emergency. However, 
uh, as case counts are allegedly going up again, uh, we see them maybe going back into another executive order or lockdown situation. So for whatever the case, uh, as of June 7th, we've been out of the executive order, but they still have not implemented these guidelines. Now, remember that date, uh, June 7th, 2021, because that's going to be uh, important in a few uh, slides from now in this presentation. All right. I believe the most important guideline or the one that's really gotten us the, the best traction in our cases has been the opioid weaning guideline. And that's really because, frankly, the cases that I see uh, are, you know, the person has been treating for years and we're really trying everything to get them back to work or get them uh, to resolve their case, maybe settle their case. And it was always a challenge to get someone who has been addicted to opiates or pain management uh, uh, medications for long periods of time. I just want to point out to everybody who's watching this webinar or maybe watching on video that there is an opioid weaning guideline and you can implement it. And I just want to be very clear about that. In the uh, non-acute pain guidelines, there are general guidelines for opioid tapering that you can reference and rely upon. And in fact, on the request for uh, further action form, there's a special form uh, or, or uh, there's a, a code that you could put on that form type O, code O, on your RFA form, which is basically saying, hey, judge, this person's been on opioids for a very long period of time. We need to start a weaning. You can check that box and file the request for further action. That will kick it up to a, a hearing in which you'll be able to argue, hey, the opioids are not making this person more functional. They're limiting their abilities. They're not getting them better. Their activities of daily living are not improving. Can we try a weaning? Now, uh, the weaning uh, schedule is, is there, it's in the guidelines, so you can reference it. Uh, we often will get our own IME physician to suggest an opioid weaning or even to actually just suggest the uh, process uh, that we want them to go through. And we think this is a very useful thing. So I just want to remind everyone that, you know, you can, as you're looking through your file, you see that there's been treatment going on forever and there's not any improvement, uh, consider uh, invoking this opioid weaning uh, uh, opportunity. The other thing I also want to stress when we talk about guidelines is that medical treatment guidelines, many times we have employees who, yeah, they got hurt maybe in New York, because that's where our location is, but they live in Connecticut or they live in New Jersey, they live in Pennsylvania, these, these states that touch uh, New York. Now, New Jersey, for example, doesn't have medical treatment guidelines or a medical fee schedule. And so what we saw, and I've been defending this now for years, is an employee who is being instructed or being directed by their medical care professional, go get their surgery in New Jersey. Or let's go, uh, we'll do this in Connecticut, my other office. Uh, and the reason for that is the uh, uh, provider is then gonna turn around and try to charge you a, a significantly higher amount of money for the same uh, treatment. And just to put this in like sharp relief and really give you a good example, uh, by what we've seen, and we've defended hundreds of these kinds of claims, it's about eight times more costly to have the exact same procedure done in New Jersey as it is in New York, because again, New Jersey doesn't have a medical fee schedule. And so there's a huge incentive there, in particular for things like ambulatory surgery. We're talking about the arthroscopies, uh, you know, the things done at manipulation, those types of things, where the uh, surgeon will literally say to the claimant, hey, come over to my, my ambulatory surgery center that I have in New Jersey, in Fort Lee, right over the George Washington Bridge, right across uh, from Manhattan, go, go have the surgery over there. And the claimant says, sure, why not? I'll take, I'll, I don't care where the surgery happens as long as you do it and you do a good job, not realizing that that's setting up their employer for this giant fee application. Now, there's been some changes in the law, and I just want to put this in, in front of everybody. 
If you see this happening in your cases, you can deny those bills. In fact, what we tell clients to do is if you see this bill for New Jersey treatment, pay the New York medical fee schedule guidelines. Uh, they will then try to file a claim in New Jersey, and we've defended them. And when I say defended them, I mean we've defended hundreds of them, uh, something called a medical provider claim, MPC, which is held before the New Jersey Workers' Compensation Court. You win on those. You're going to win, and you're going to get dismissals on those cases. And so you should really be defending them. Also, it's important to know that there is case law that says medical treatment guidelines still apply to out-of-state providers. And this should really speak to those situations where maybe the, the claimant has legitimately moved. You know, we've got so many claimants who've retired and moved to Florida or Tennessee or some one of these states, and they're down there getting medical treatment, and the, uh, the physician's not familiar with the New York medical treatment guidelines, and they're not filing all the forms. The board's going to give them some leeway on not filing the forms, but they're not going to give them leeway on going ab above and beyond doing treatments that far exceed the guidelines. And so you do have a defense. Uh, there is case law that says medical treatment guidelines still apply to out-of-state medical care, and the case is called NRA Hospice. Uh, in addition, the bills uh, should be disputed. And if you're getting bills, and particularly it's happening uh, with New Jersey, in fact, there's like a cottage industry of physicians who are sending their uh, claimants, their New York workers' comp patients to New Jersey to get surgeries done and then hitting you with these huge bills, you can win on those. And we've been defending them and winning on them. In fact, there is a New Jersey Supreme Court case which says New Jersey has no jurisdiction and should not be deciding those in favor of the medical provider, that they should be kicking them back to New York. Our experience has been when those, when those bills get kicked back to New York, the board applies the fee schedule, which is very favorable to employers. So that's something very important to keep in mind. All right. Uh, two years ago, New York ex expanded what their definition of a medical provider is. And as you know, we are now getting acupuncturists, physical therapists, even occupational therapists, uh, social workers uh, writing prescriptions and uh, seeking treatment under law. That has all been expanded to allow for that. They may also file their C4 auths, that's a request for authorization, essentially a request to depart from the medical treatment guidelines directly. So that's all happening now. Um, has this led, in my mind, to some unnecessary and uh, not very curative care? Yes, unfortunately, uh, this is one area where we took a big step back. Uh, okay, quick drug formulary update. New York has a drug formulary as of 2019. It's mandatory in all of your cases. Um, and it's e easier than ever really to administer the drug formulary uh, because this onboard limiting release program will actually do the matching for you. So it's really good. Uh, here's the challenge though. They keep kicking back the date and they kicked back the date twice as to when the drug formulary would be mandatory for refills of prescriptions. And the crazy thing we were seeing back in 2019 and 2020 is people getting prescriptions for pain meds, for example, or for specific medications and um, all sorts of things that are now disallowed under the drug formulary, including compounded drugs. And, but the uh, prescription, the refill time was a year. And so you have this formulary that comes in and says things like, no, you can't prescribe uh, non-generics. And no, you can't prescribe compounded medications. That's you know, a ripoff, you shouldn't be doing it. But the physicians had written prescriptions that had super long refill rates. The board kept kicking back the day of the refill uh, threshold would be. It has now been extended to June 7th, 2021. So after June 7th, 2021, uh, refills are, are void and old prescriptions are void. So you should be getting new prescriptions and they should be compliant with the drug formulary. That's good for us. And the reason that's good for us is because non-generics 
are required and compound medications are essentially disallowed. There's, there's states in the, in the guidelines that they should not be done. And we're seeing, you've seen those, you've seen these uh, medications where it's, uh, it's two different medications just stuck together and all of a sudden they cost 15 times more. A great example of that uh, was an anti-inflammatory is two cents a pill uh, and a GERD drug, a gastroesophageal reflux disease drug would be two cents a pill. But when you combine them into the same pill, all of a sudden they're a dollar each. The board is saying, we're not allowing this compound stuff. Just give them two separate prescriptions and it'll be a lot cheaper. So this is really good for us and it's been good for uh, employers. Um, in addition to the no compounds, there's no custom formulations as well. There have to be a variance filed by the physician explaining why this person needs a customized drug made or formulated for them. All right, um, medicinal marijuana, it's a thing now. Uh, yes, New York does have a compassionate use law and they are, do issue medicinal marijuana cards. Uh, we cannot pay for it directly as an insurer. Uh, last year, medicinal marijuana laws were expanded to cover basically everything now qualifies for medicinal marijuana. You know, it used to be you had to have terminal cancer in order to be prescribed medicinal marijuana. Now it's being prescribed for headaches. Uh, and so uh, in addition, of course, recreational use has been passed uh, in several of these states. Uh, we haven't really seen that come into our comp cases, uh, but the expanded provider law has covered basically any condition. So you'll see it pop up in your cases. Just remember, you can't pay for the medicinal marijuana directly uh, and it is not addressed anywhere in the schedules or the fee schedules, but you can reimburse the claimant and that's done through the M&A process. Uh, I'm sorry, the M&T process. And that's how you'll reimburse them. You'll directly reimburse them for what they're paying out of pocket for their uh, compassionate use medicinal marijuana. Um, all right, another little uh, impact of COVID-19 has been telemedicine. We've seen the use of telemedicine explode, and frankly, it's been great. Uh, we've seen less missed doctor's appointments. Uh, it has also eliminated those claimants who say they're too scared to go to the doctor uh, because they were worried about contracting COVID-19. Well, see your doctor on video. Uh, and we really uh, think this is a good thing, and it helps uh, reduce the amount of delay that we have in workers' comp cases. Um, the emergency authorization has been consistently extended throughout the COVID-19 period. Uh, just recently, uh, and I think it was July 17th, there is now a proposed regulation which would make it permanent. So telehealth would be permanently approved and it would be in the place of everything, including psychotherapy, group psychotherapy, even physical therapy, even chiropractic visits could be held via telehealth. So my advice is, hey, it's generally a good thing for us because it should reduce delay and improve access to care. But I think we still got to be looking at this. I don't know how you're doing chiropractic treatment uh, via video conference call, but hey, so my advice would be to give you, keep your eyes on this and don't let it get out of control. It is still subject to the medical treatment guidelines. The guidelines do not care the modality of which treatment is offered. Uh, as long as the person is getting the treatment, it's covered by the guidelines. All right. Uh, I've talked a lot. Uh, thanks for coming in. I hope you have some questions for me. I would love to jump into some live questions and answers. So uh, I'm going to come over here and pop out the question panel and I'll see. Okay. All right. Uh, first question. I got a bunch of questions here. Let me, let me make this expand this. Maybe it looks okay. Okay. So Chris asked the question. Christopher asked the question. Greg, on Friday, the board issued guidance regarding labor market attachment. Yes, they did. Uh, they did two things on Friday, which are kind of unbelievable. Uh, the first one that they think they did on Friday, uh, Chris, 
was they, thank goodness, extended the electronic signature uh, rule relaxation. That was really going to cause a problem for a lot of claimants and doctors and bosses, defense attorneys, uh, the fact that they were going to require wet signatures. But the other thing they did, and Chris is referencing it here, uh, is saying that uh, they've extended the labor market attachment. And here's what he says. He says, quote, Greg, claimants who are under an obligation to demonstrate attachment should make efforts to attach the labor market as soon as practical. An online phone and phone interview should be accepted. In-person job searches are not presently required. It sounds like the board is giving the claimant every opportunity and excuse not to look for work. Are you anticipating the same from the board? Okay, so great question and thanks for bringing this up. Yes, they have extended again, essentially uh, their refusal to uh, push people back to work by uh, allowing us to push for labor market attachment. But I wanna tell you something. As soon as June 7th came around, I think it was June 21st, we were filing like crazy labor market attachment um, RFAs. But we've already had hearings on some of them. And in those cases, the claimant's been directed to go out and complete a job search and fill out their C-258, that job search record form. So we've already seen results on this. Now, the board's official guidance and its bulletins has said, hey, we're not going to even look at labor market attachment stuff until after August 16th. That's today. And then, of course, on Friday, they say, well, we're going to you know, be wishy-washy. We're going to be a little uh, circumspect about how we're going to apply labor market attachment. My position on this has been very clear. It's been the same from day one. We should be pushing labor market attachment. I have employers, a lot of employers that are telling me, Greg, my biggest problem right now is I can't get employees. I can't get licensed forklift drivers. I can't get delivery drivers. I can't get people to work in the warehouse. I can't get employees, right? That's their biggest problem. And so the idea that the claimant can't go out and find a job is a little bit ridiculous or that they're having trouble. But the fact that the board's saying uh, as well, hey, just do a job search online or do a phone interview, that's fine. That's fine for me because I'll bet you those people are going to get callbacks and they're going to get offered positions. So I think this is actually good. Any movement on labor market attachment is good. Uh, we can't just leave it up to the board, though, guys. We have to push on this. This is definitely something we can win on and something we should push on. So uh, I don't agree or I don't look at that as saying, hey, you're out of luck. The labor market attachment isn't a thing. In fact, if you read that, the guidance they delivered, they said, hey, um, you know, you should be telling them to look for work, but just be, you know, just be sort of uh, uh, lenient about how hard that search is. But I still think this is a good thing and we should still be pushing it. Um, all right, Daniel asked some questions about, first she asked a question about why doesn't the board require providers to submit a variance for neck fusions, but they do for back fusions, right? That's a weird thing. So there are uh, 13 procedures uh, which uh, do never require a variance, and, and, and strangely enough, they believe that a neck fusion requires one, but a back doesn't. And again, these guidelines, when they were implemented back in 2012, they were really, I think, taken from some best practices. I, I definitely, you know, you see where they've grabbed these occupational health statistics they, they used. And I, I think at that time, that rulemaking was, hey, we're going we're gonna to always allow this one, but this one you have to file for a variance. Personally, I think every fusion should be really considered. We don't see a lot of tremendous great results from fusions unless you're a professional athlete or someone very motivated to get back to work. Those fusions really don't have the greatest track record in my opinion. Um, but that's just one of those uh, rule things that doesn't make a ton of sense. Um, Danielle says, Greg, I have when I get a variance requesting medicinal marijuana, I was told to deny it and state it's not approved on a federal level. Yeah, you can do that. You can try that, but you're going to lose on the denial. In other words, uh, what she's saying is, Greg, when I get a variance request for medicinal marijuana, I deny it. I, I think you should because it's not included in the guidelines. However, when you go to a hearing, you're most likely going to lose on that topic. 
that's okay. Uh, they still can't force you to pay for it. All they can force you to do is reimburse the claimant for the medicinal marijuana. And remember, they have to ask for it first, be denied, and then win. They can't just present you with, uh, uh, here's some bunch of bills for medicinal marijuana, and then you deny it. And then if they say, oh, well, post facto, or now I'm going to I'm going to make a request that that be authorized. It's too late. They've missed their opportunity by that point. All right. Uh, Patricia asked the question, Greg, I have a claimant who moved to South Carolina, but will be moving back to New York, but wants to treat in South Carolina while he remains there. Which fee schedule applies? My advice is to apply the New York fee schedule. Uh, you know, you're, you might get pushback from the provider in that location. Uh, I guess it would depend on which fee schedule is higher or lower. But in general, the, uh, the case law will tell you that the fee schedule that applies is New York. And then if the provider, the South Carolina provider, doesn't like it, their recourse is to go before the board here in New York and ask for enhanced or additional payment. Now, the board can order you to pay additional money. They could say, well, in that area or that location, the doctors are reimbursed more highly, whatever they want to uh, argument. But in general, we don't see that happening. We see the board really... Uh, so you're really enforcing its fee schedule. And particularly, we see that with New Jersey providers as well. Um, Danielle asked another question. Uh, Greg, when the when claim settles by work by Section 32, why does the board reverse all C-8.1B decisions? It doesn't automatically. That's something that you can stipulate or put into your settlement document. In general, where there are C-8.1Bs in favor of the uh, claimant or that are outstanding, We'll generally put in the section 32, those will be resolved in favor of the of the provider. But you could negotiate that. You could argue and say, look, those C-8.1Bs, those, those uh, treatments that I'm disputing, I don't want them included in this settlement and I'm not paying for that in this settlement. Uh, that's your problem. You could try that. Uh, that is a, a point to negotiate. All right. Um, Teresa asked the question, Greg, once there's been a hearing on a weaning program, if the prescribing if the prescribing provider does not follow it, can the carrier then only pay for the medication that would satisfy the decision? Okay, so you've got a decision on a hearing, say this person needs to do an opioid weaning. And now the, the provider's like, I'm not doing that, I'm gonna keep prescribing them all my stuff. You should be denying and disputing all those bills. That is C-8.1B all day long, right, because this provider is now not just departing from the guidelines, now they're refusing to do what the judge ordered them to do. The judge does have the authority to tell a treating provider, no, that treatment you're pursuing is not curative, stop doing it. And the way you enforce that is you stop paying for it. Okay. Uh, all right, scrolling down. I think that's all the questions. These were great questions today. It makes this topic a lot more fun. So thanks for asking those questions. Keeps me on my toes. All right. Uh, so that's uh, our live question and answer. Next month, we're going to be talking about IMEs. I'm going to be talking about how to get the best out of your independent medical evaluator. And I'm also going to talk about when you should get a record review and not a physical exam, and when you should get a physical exam and not a record review. So I'm going to try to walk us through uh, that topic as best I can. All right. Thanks for joining me, everybody. I had a great day talking to you. Have a great week.